0: This week I received a letter in the mail from Daryl Whitmer, who is the head of a ministry called A2A, Areopagus to America, which is the group that sponsored the Ravi Zacharias Apologetics Conference that we had up in Bangor last spring. And apparently um, this June uh, they have organized, they have invited 48 Individuals And they limited it to that. Uh, 48 individuals to be involved in a think tank, whatever those are. Um, I always picture the Wizard of Oz, you know, whether they're there with the wizard getting their, their gifts or whatever it is from the wizard. And, you know, he's talking about uh, the people, you know, who think great thoughts, you know, if I only had a brain kind of thing. So that's how I kind of picture the uh, think tank of, uh, and strangely, you know, in the ironies of life, I've been invited to be a part of that. And it's not like it's a conference; we're not going to be sitting there listening to people talk. We are going to be six people to a uh, to a table, eight tables in a room for uh, basically 24 hours. Uh, I mean, not consistently, (laughs) but I don't think. Maybe I should check on that. Hmm. Anyway. And so as I was reading through the informative letter telling us what to kind of prepare for, and they included an apologetics book that we're supposed to read before we get there, they said that really the goal of this is for us to, I guess, have great thoughts or what have you on how we can make apologetics more mainstream in the local congregation. Now, for those of you who may not understand the the word apologetics, it is kind of a a funny word because it comes from uh, the Greek apologia, from which we get our word apology. But I assure you, this isn't a 24-hour lock-in where we're going to be discussing various ways to say I'm sorry. Okay? And those... Hello? (laughs) Wow. Okay. Anyway, that's all right. It's okay. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, I'm not even gonna go to the love means never having to say you're sorry because then I would really be dating myself, uh, and that would be awkward in and of itself too. Anyway, um, so the goal is to figure out how to mainstream apologetics, which is the, the, I suppose uh, ideally a systematic way of defending the faith in our context, the way of of how you explain the things of God, how you justify the things of God scripturally, how you come against people who take exception to what the Bible says and whether it's true or not, and all of that, that's all bound up in what it is to to uh, be involved in apologetics. And so I've been thinking, that's been on my mind this week as I've been preparing this morning's sermon, and it dawned on me that as we've been in this book now for uh, way too long, um, we're approaching chapter 13, and for the last many weeks, uh, Mark has been focusing in on Jesus' many confrontations with the religious leaders of the day, and it's been pretty much, uh, 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 for the most part, and certainly not an even fight, because uh, Jesus always comes out on top, but it, it dawned on me that Jesus not just in his confrontations with the religious leaders of the day, but even what we know from all of the Gospels and from Mark of his dealings with the disciples and just living life with them, what Jesus does is apologetics. And so the bottom line for the believer is that every notion, not some, but every, every idea that comes across our minds, every thought must come back to knowing the word not merely knowing about the word and that's something that over my years now as a christian and observing kind of christendom that a lot of christians know a lot about the bible but they don't know the bible they know a lot about the word but they don't know the word per se And so this idea of apologetics, first of all, is grounded in the idea that taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, we need to first know the word, not just about the word. And we need to know about the written, (laughs) forget that, we need to know the written word as well as the word that became flesh, namely Jesus. Well, Jesus has been in and around the temple now for, at least in our preaching, several uh, for uh, several months, um, even though it's only been really a few days. And uh, we start in Mark chapter 13 this morning, picking up in verse 1, and we read that Jesus was going out of the temple. As Jesus was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Jesus just surprises us routinely. Do you think that the disciple making the comment, having come up, uh, up from the temple and he's there with, with the Savior and the Messiah, and he's looking at this very impressive edifice, which it is, I'll be talking about that in a minute, that he was expecting Jesus to say anything near along the lines. What he did is he's, he's marveling at the grandeur of this temple, and Jesus says, yeah, and there's not going to be left one stone upon another. Now, I can't rightly impugn the motive of the disciple making the comment. But I do wonder if he made his remark, given the context of what we've seen over the many months with Jesus and his disciples and kind of their, their basic cluelessness as a matter of course, if perhaps he wasn't saying this to Jesus to impress him, hoping perhaps Jesus would think, whoa, now you are what I'm not talking about concerning the Pharisees. You are a godly man. You're a godly disciple. And then again, perhaps the disciple really was simply making a very innocent expression of appreciation for the architectural wonder, as I said, that the temple was. It took 10,000 men. Let that number just kind of go through your mind from all the practicalities of being involved in a construction project. It took 10,000 men for 10 years just to build the retaining wall around the Temple Mount. The Western Wall, formerly known as the Wailing Wall, which is I'm more familiar with it being called that, is merely a small part of the 500-meter long retaining wall that was designed to hold a huge man-made platform that could accommodate 24 football fields. We're talking about a big structure. In fact, the entire temple proper took up one-sixth of the land of Jerusalem. And when it was completed, it was the world's largest functioning religious site, and until today, it still remains the largest man made platform in the world. As I proceed here now, um, I'm just giving you a fair warning. Prepare for a somewhat protracted introduction to this passage that might cause you as I go along to be going, what in the world did he lose his place in the text? Fair enough, but stay with me. We have to keep in mind, again, the context that we've been in for, again, the past several months as we've been looking at Jesus dealing with the religious people of the day. Now, an overriding theme in Mark Concerning Jesus' confrontations with those religious leaders has been the destructive nature of looking like someone who is a child of heaven. Someone looking like a child of heaven who is acting like a child of hell. The challenge of an ill-defined spirituality, as I'll call it, is not just an ancient problem, which is why this is relevant to us. Over many decades just in my lifetime, as each scandal in Christendom rocks the sensibilities of the faithful, one thing routinely and repeatedly jumps out at me concerning each scandal. Though the particular besetting sins change from clergy to clergy, There is one common thread that no one, and I mean no one, at least again, just in my, I don't have, you know, omniscient knowledge, but in my experience of all these things, no one ever seems to mention. And that thread is the fact that when someone's sin, and again, this is true of of every Christian that sins, but I'm in the context now of people in prominence, religious leaders and the like, when the sin starts coming to light, what you discover is a very long and protracted march down the corridor of rebellion. What I mean by that is that that kind of sin that finally breaks a scandal is never just an oops. It's never a stumble. It's never just a quick and careless decision or a momentary lapse in judgment. In every church scandal, again, that I'm aware of in my lifetime, well before the spotlighted sins are uncovered, there were months or years of habitual planned deception. First, to one's own self, the heart is more deceitful above all else and is desperately corrupt, Jeremiah tells us. And then, to one's spouse, then to one's friends, and then to one's colleagues and acquaintances, and then any other of the people to whom they are in some kind of relationship, either having some official or unofficial accountability. And I'm going to make an assertion here, so you can reject it out of hand if you like. But I believe there has never been a Christ follower who has succumbed to a physical dalliance On a spur of the moment, or in a surprise of weakness, catching one off guard, escalating to fornication, all in the blink of an eye. God simply has not wired us together that way. And I understand, and you understand too, that Hollywood loves to portray what I would call a fictional human sexuality on the screen, precisely because it is titillating, and it effectively markets the draw of the male ticket holder. But as we march down the the debauched state of our culture, what we are seeing is, is that it is very rapidly increasing to also be effective marketing to the female ticket holder as well. And that marks a big change just in society at large. Over 50 years now, down the timeline of history, feminism, striving to replace the divinely created feminine mystique, replaces it with a feminine mistake. In 1963, those of you who are old enough to be around then to even remember, Betty Friedan wears the, the badge of shame for being the one with her pivotal work entitled The Feminine Mystique, for being the one who is, in a sense, as, as far as you know, looking at the whole timeline and the way things develop, sort of being the progenitor of the official beginning of the spirit of the age, coming of age, striving to eliminate the beauty that God created in gender differences. <laughs> Again, I thought we were talking about the temple. We are, trust me. In God's plan for man, which means man and woman, there has always been equality. There has never been sameness, and feminism has so fused equality and sameness as to upend the created order of anthropology, with the goal of becoming now not merely equal to their male counterpart. Feminism has been committed to a systematic blurring and confusion of those glorious distinctions between men and women in a full-out assault on the Imago Dei, that is, on the created input into us by the Creator, the image of God. In one metric alone, and I'm only taking one because, again, this really isn't the, the point. This is an illustration of leading up to why the whole temple thing is important and relative to us. But looking at only one metric, what we see is there's this ongoing transformation between men and women, evidenced by the exponential rise in the use, and I'm trying to be discreet here for the sake of the audience, the exponential rise in the use of virtual physical relationships. Are you with me there? they have skyrocketed among women, where it was once a uniquely male temptation. And I just happened to stumble upon the fact that 100 million women have read Fifty Shades of Grey. All this has been to say, is that when scandal finally breaks, devastating hundreds and even thousands of lives in a church setting, it's an effort to contain myself. When the initial sound bites emanating from the affected church and the affected congregation are a very simplistic and unbiblical demand for immediate forgiveness and quick restoration as proof of that forgiveness. And that is both dangerous and it is offensive to the victim or the victims involved. What happens is that a level of sin which took months and perhaps years to develop is camouflaged by deceit, stacked up upon deceit, in order to keep it hidden, while week after week the yet as unknown offending party, and again remember we're talking about clergy here, just for way of, of illustration, clergy, before it's known, stands publicly performing the ambassador role of the minister unbeknownst to the masses that he is in those very moments methodically and knowingly spitting on the suffering Savior. When confession does come, if it comes at all, it is almost Always, only after being caught. Which always makes it very difficult to know. Is the confession sincere? Is the repentance real? Is the I'm sorry real or is it I'm sorry I got caught and now look at how messed up I made my life. That's for God to judge to be sure. But we're not to be stupid about it either. You see, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees Jesus has been calling out as we've been in the Gospel of Mark for now, I think, about two years. Yes, two years. He's been calling them out in his public ministry. The hypocrisy of the Pharisees still thrives at every level of the local church and, candidly, it always will. It differs only by degree, but it is inevitable. It is who the church is made up of. It is why we we need a Savior. You know, if we had arrived, it might be a different story. Oh, but we need a Savior. But saying that, I have to say, woe be to the church that intentionally or even unintentionally encourages such an environment by turning a blind eye to the appearance of evil, which in itself is an hypocrisy all of its own. It is yet one more reason the local church has basically lost its, its authority and its way in the modern culture. Do you see these great buildings? Jesus asked the disciple. Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. I believe that the purpose of that statement by Jesus was yet another illustration of the structures of the temporary and inadequate system of sacrifice and law to deal with man's sin will be entirely dismantled when the Redeemer comes and He fulfills the whole law, offering up that singular sacrifice for sin, then ushering in a new temple and a new tabernacle, a new meeting place of God with his people. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 9 alludes to this pointedly. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, one not made with hands, that is to say, one that is not of this creation. What was he referring to? Whatever the grandeur of the earthly temple, it must be dismantled, for it was only a physical symbol of a much greater reality. Which was what? Something that we Christ followers, I don't believe, do nearly enough contemplation and consideration of. Namely, that Emmanuel which Jesus name is Emmanuel it's Hebrew for God with us that Emmanuel God with us becomes a present and abiding reality for each one who bows their name to Jesus bows their knee to Jesus when i say becomes a present reality i don't mean intellectually I mean present in a new and unique, never before the New Testament seen before. In John chapter 16, Jesus is there and he's talking to the disciples. And the context is there is that as they're marching down the timeline of his ministry and the end is is approaching very rapidly, he's having a heart to heart with the disciples and he's letting them know that look, sports fans, you know, I got good news and I got bad news. Okay? The bad news is I'm leaving, and of course they're like, "You're what? No, you can't. ah, Wait, are you kidding me? You know how cluelessly are we are. You can't be. You can't be serious." And he says, "No, really. It's to your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, and that's the good news." You see, what they didn't understand was that while Emmanuel was with them as the second person of the Godhead, the Son, the Word incarnate, God in human fleshly form, Jesus was limited to space and time. So like the the good friends, the faithful friends of the man with the paralytic, who knew Jesus was in town and if they could only get their friend to him, that maybe Jesus would heal him. And you know the story. They go through the, the efforts of taking this paralytic up on top of the house because the house was packed out. They couldn't get in it. And they cut a hole in the roof and they set him right down through the roof in front of Jesus. They had to take that person to find Jesus after first finding out where he is. And when you need Jesus' help, if you got something, you got to ask Jesus. you got to go find out where he is and you got to go to him and he can only be one place at a time. But he says, when I go away... Now the third person of the triune Godhead, the Holy Spirit, I'm going to send him, and now he is going to be with you everywhere and all the time. You don't have to wonder where he is. He will reside with you. And as the disciple admires the facade of religion, And all the masks of holiness that goes with that. God tells him with his dynamic pronouncement that God is no longer going to be dwelling in an earthly physical structure. He is going to be residing within. Within the believer's very being. And Paul says it as clearly as you can say it to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? It's not like the days of the old temple, as glorious as it was, where the, Shekin, the Shekinah glory, the manifest presence of God Almighty would come down into the Holy of Holies and, and come to rest uh, between the wings of the cherubim and seraphim on the holy seat. You had to go there. You had to make your pilgrimage to go and meet God at that physical place. That's all going to be taken care of now. It's all done away because God incarnate has fulfilled everything and taken care of this so that now God will come and live with you. Up close and personal, (laughs) whether you like that or not. I cannot prove this, but I believe the comment of the disciple was a sincere statement of admiration for the grand picture that the temple was to the faithfulness of God's people that they should build such an incredible structure to Jehovah, to their God, to their King. You see, in the day, and we're not talking now about just a religious context, but in the day, The greater the king, the grander the architecture, if it was possible. And they were particularly taken by the sheer magnitude of even the stones used in its building. And when it came to castles and to cathedrals, size mattered. (laughs) Hence the sheer wow factor of the architecture of the old cathedrals, and I don't know if you've ever had the experience of visiting one, and some anywhere in the world. The, the nearest one that I know of is up in uh, just across the Canadian border. What's the name of that? Is that Saint Anne's or something? Or some right Saint Anne of Beauport? Yeah. Uh, if you've never been up there, wow. Okay, Just from an architectural standpoint, it is wowing. Barb and I had the absolute delight of visiting Italy a couple of times. And our last time we uh, managed to go to Florence, where we took in, it's hard not to take it in. It's so immense and, and just looming and all present, what's called Il Duomo for short. The formal name of it is the Cattedrale di Santa Maria del Fiore, in my best fake Italian accent that I can muster. And what you see behind me is the dome, uh, Il Duomo, sorry, the, the distance shot of the whole cathedral. I mean, it, again, the picture doesn't do it justice. But we're very, very far away. You know, see, I'm saying we because I took the same picture. This is off the Internet. So, But it's just, it's immense. And then I took another, or brought up a perspective shot, which is from uh, on sort of on a different part of the uh, the cathedral, showing again part of the dome and trying to give you an idea of the the vastness of this. And then when we were there, we of course we went inside. You can go inside; it's all open and public and all. The dome that you saw, the inside of it, with again it's immense. I don't know how big it is, but it's immense. And the entire dome is covered with art. And I mean, just ancient art. It's spectacular. And of course, I walked in, and this was in the days of... How many of you remember film cameras? My 35 millimeter. and I walked in, and I was just like... And so I walked to where I was exactly dead under the center of it. I laid down on my back so that I could take just the perfect straight-on shot to get it all symmetrical, hopefully, in my framing. And I took the picture that looked very much like that, only much more vibrant. This is really more washed out than uh, than I remember it. And, of course, there wasn't anybody in that place that had any idea that I was a tourist. <laughs> but when I dust my fanny pack off, they knew right away. No, 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 no. And then finally, again, as we went inside, you just walk in and you just go. It's just... Huge. And again, you can't even get the feeling of the perspective of what it's like. And they were huge and they were amazing and they were uh, ornate and all to create a sense of awe. And when you walk in, you are to sense the bigness, the majesty of God Himself. And you feel small in there. And that is all by design. Because it emphasizes the immensity of the God of heaven and earth. Now we're back to the temple under Herod, which I said was magnificent. In fact, if they hadn't, uh, in, in essence, stopped um, uh, tabulating or compiling the seven wonders of the world, if they had an eighth wonder of the world, architects who, who are in the know and everything else know that, have said that the temple of Herod was so spectacular that it would have easily made the wonders of the world list. That's how amazing it was. The stones from which it were fashioned, and this was very rough calculation, and I know they're going to be bigger than even what I say because I, the measurements were in cubits, and a cubit in the Bible was the tip of your finger to your elbow. And so my cubit is going to be vastly different from some of your cubits. Okay? Uh, I had a good friend in the first service who's six foot seven, I think, or, yeah, something ridiculous. Shouldn't even be allowed to be that tall. So his cubit's going to be quite a bit bigger. But using my small diminutive Tyrannosaurus Rex arm, I calculated the stones, okay, were 35 feet. Now, this is a single stone. 35 feet by 17 feet by 11 feet thick. And we're not talking about, you know, okay, bring in the crane. But the temple, while a great architectural structure, was emblematic of the problems of God's people and their hypocritical relationship to the Lord that they were supposedly honoring with such a great, magnificent temple. Beautiful building? Absolutely. Beautiful people? Eh, Not so much. The various vignettes that we've been studying, especially from chapter 11 in this gospel, verse 27 and forward, in and around the temple, are focusing on Jesus exposing the proprietors of the temple, the carekeepers of the temple, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the scholars and the fakes, the hypocrites, and the scurrilous people who went through all these motions of holy religious observance when they were, were, were scurrilous people, nasty people, who were in it for the good vibes of religion, but they had no use for the Lord of their souls. For God's people, the temple was their crowning glory, was their crowning glory, much like the Tower of Babel was back in Genesis 10. You know how that worked out. As far as Jesus was concerned, the greatness of the temple was indicative of the size of their egos and the greatness of their pride. So when the disciple is wowed again by the magnitude of the structure, Jesus says something that is shocking. Yeah, yeah, and not one of these gigantic stones is going to be left in this state of grandeur. This sucker, loose translation, is coming down a-crumbling with the faulty foundations on which all religious hypocrisy is built. Now, some have liked to criticize the fact that it didn't happen as Jesus said he said that these buildings were going to come you know down and, and be and you know basically amount to nothing and all of that and they point out oh wait come on you can see you can see remnants of the temple today <laughs> again you got to love the critics jesus said the temple and the temp, the buildings immediately associated with the temple would be brought to nothing. And in 70 A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, Rome absolutely ransacked Jerusalem. And those great stones of those buildings were so effectively annihilated that today biblical archaeologists are not even sure... Where the temple itself stood so thoroughly was any trace of it gone from history. Don't doubt the Bible. Go ahead and doubt Bible teachers, like myself, but don't doubt the Bible. Mark ends with another mic drop and ends with a brief conversation as quickly as it started. And he does so without commentary. It's almost as if Jesus says, you know don't be impressed by the sparkle of man-made spirituality. It is as unstable and as destined to perish as are all the religious fakes who mock it by their deceitful lifestyles of hypocrisy. Now last week, Pastor Brent said something along the lines of, Knowing your Bible isn't the be-all, end-all. It is surrender. And I made note of that because that's an awesome point and ties in right to what I'm talking about. As much as I said that it's vital that we know the Word, not about the Word, but that we know the Word, absolutely. But there are people like the Pharisees, who knew the word better than anybody in the day, and yet they were not surrendered to it. Their hearts, in the words of Jesus, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. This morning, as I wrap this up, I want to ask you a question. What... Divine, what divinely designed destiny are you? Throwing away or considering throwing away or about to throw away for some momentary gratification that you think is going to somehow bring peace, bring fulfillment, bring bring whatever's missing in your life, bring happiness, bring joy, bring thrill, the whole bit. Because at that very moment, you are smacking the chains of Debbie Boone's, yeah, I know, this was a long time ago, Debbie Boone, Christian singer, the daughter of Pat Boone, with her hit song, You Light Up My Life. She says in her song in the chorus, it feels so right, it can't be wrong, you light up my life. And that is exactly where Satan won in the Garden of Eden. If Debbie Boone had been seeing clearly, and hopefully she has come to that since, if her blinders were removed, she would see she was not looking with that thought at the angel of light or the light of the Lord. She would see the angel of death had just darkened the doorway. For it was there in that garden that Eve took, and what we are told is that It looked good to the eyes. God said, don't eat it. But Eve said, oh, but it looks so good. How can something that looks so good, it feels so right? It can't be wrong. (laughs) Hey, Adam, you try it. Okay, it feels so right, it can't be wrong, is just possibly the number one lie contemporarily of Satan himself. I cannot tell you how many times in 30 years of ministry I've had sound, solid, taught by me for years and years sit in front of me and tell me I know that this is wrong, but it just feels so good and it's the first time I've been happy and I know God wants me to be happy. Shoot me now. The word makarios in the scriptures, which is translated happy, doesn't mean happy. It means blessed. Is there an element in there of happiness? There can be. But it's a far cry from happiness. God wants us to be content. God wants us to be at peace. God wants us to be obedient and surrendered. And again, how many of us have either eliminated by our habitual sin to where what God wanted to do with you and with me in my life has now been shelved. Now that doesn't mean that God's through with us or done with us or anything else. He's not. But some people have ruined that destiny of what God would have done and now they had to settle for something less. All because, all because, they said, if it feels right, it can't be wrong. And if that does apply to you, and I can't answer, obviously, on behalf of God, some people have done that and sinned in great and egregious ways, and yet God's gone on to use them. We have plenty and use them in big ways. We have plenty of examples in Scripture, like David, like Peter, like Jonah, like Paul, <laughs> Matthew, Mark, look, you kind of go through the, the big names of the Scripture. So we're in good company. But we stand on the moment as believers in Christ with him saying, I have a great and wonderful thing for you to do. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean you're going to be happy. But you will be joy-filled if you are in that surrendered position. And we go, yeah, that's cool, Lord. I'm there, but in a little bit. I got something to take care of over here. can't play games with the Lord God Almighty like that. And if you aren't even at that place in your, your spiritual pilgrimage where, where again you've even bowed your knee to Christ it, it is in a sense a different a different ball game. It, it would take way too long to explain. But I'm telling you to get on that road to bow your knee to Christ with surrender not with oh, I'll pick and choose out of this what uh, what seems to be able uh, to sound good to me and what might work, and if it doesn't work, I'll bag it or whatever. No, no, no. You surrender to him and say, where next, Lord? Where next? You can hop on a boat like Jonah and go in the opposite direction, or you can go where he says He has a destiny for every single one of us. Let's step into that and surrender, trusting that He knows truly what is best for us. Let the foundations of religiosity and spirituality crumble and build a new foundation and a new edifice to the glory of God as God takes up residence in the new temple. I'm going to ask Scott Ludick to come on up, one of our elders here, to close our time in prayer.
1: Thank you, Bill, for a great message. Um, What I'd like to do for just uh, 20 or 30 seconds, is thinking through and and seeing these young families this morning dedicating these children, it just convicted me that we also need to be the one to dedicate ourselves to rallying around young families and, and helping young families raise godly children. So what I'd like to do is just take 20 seconds or so, and, and if each one of us would just pray silently, God, what do you want me to do to help our young families? And then I'll close us out uh, doubling back to some of the stuff uh, Brent spoke, uh, Bill spoke about. Heavenly Father, as grand as your temple and your cathedrals are, we're so thankful that you've taken up residence, sending your spirit into our hearts. Lord, we ask you to help us to take every thought captive so that we're never in that role of deception. The deception of ourselves, the deception of others, or even the the faulty thinking that we could somehow deceive you. Lord, our deepest desire should be to know you, not just know about you, but to know you. It's a wonderful journey, Lord. We thank you for that.